0: Welcome to The Link, the podcast that links the past to the present for those who went to high school in the 1980s.
1: It is a perfect time to reflect and to take stock and to think about really fun parts of our past,
2: but also some challenges. I get to see and hear all your amazing faces and a blast from the past, which is always super exciting, seeing who we were then and who we are now.
3: We really didn't know what was going on in each other's lives very much. And so finding out the real scoop is incredibly rewarding.
0: Yes, that's right. We're back on The Link. It is my pleasure to introduce the hosts of The Link. Diana Donovan, Farrah Pandith, and Meredith Zinner. Yes. They're back. <laughs> Farah, how are you doing? You look worried.
1: I am not worried at all. I'm okay. very happy. Thank you.
0: And uh, Meredith, I know you made. Uh, actually, no, it's Diana. You made the sacrifice to get up so early this morning, right? I'm forgetting it, my time zones.
3: It's eight o'clock here in California. I've got my coffee.
0: Okay. None of us are uh, feel bad for you because there's like <laughs> some of us were shoveling snow recently. And Meredith, dinner. How are you? <laughs>
2: Very well, thank you. I am thrilled to have our guest.
0: <laughs> That's when you yes. need to crank the podcast up from a 3 to a 10. Marith Zinner is your woman. <laughs> My name, by the way, is David Yaz. I'm the producer of the, whatever this thing is, and also a, a classmate, 1986, class of 1986, Milton Academy, which is kind of the point of this thing in case you missed it. But we welcome in guests who are our classmates or perhaps other interesting people, and uh, Diana, Would you like to introduce the mystery guest who's on the line?
3: Yes. I'd love to introduce our mystery guest. So today we have joining us all the way from Madrid, Soledad Fox Maura, who is um, class of 86. She's a professor at William College. She is an author of multiple books, most recently published her first novel, and she has so many amazing things she's going to talk to us about today. So welcome, Soli.
0: Yeah. And
2: she has a puppy.
4: Lovely.
3: And she has a new puppy, yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> OK, well, let's get this out of the way. What's the name of the puppy?
4: <laughs> the puppy is a Havanese terrier, and his name is Lalum. And I've had him, we've had him for a week. And he's, he's about three months old, but it looks like he's about four weeks old. He's super cute.
2: He's a tiny. Lalo. Yeah. We almost named our dog that because it sounds oh, so nice.
4: That's the serendipity of the link. <laughs> oh.
2: I think that when you get into,
4: I don't know, we'll have to talk, Meredith, because there's, when you get into the dog world,
2: <laughs> the yeah, kind endless. Oh, we can, we can
3: completely go into the dog world today.
2: Oh yeah, seriously. I mean, <laughs> I, I can give you a really great YouTube teacher, Zach George, Zach oh. George. I've taught my dog to sit down, come touch, leave it and stand. Wow. think to do
4: with your acting talents. This dog has been here for a week, and when it arrived, it knew one word. That's what we were told, that it knew one word, a very important word, which is actually not to be laughed about. This is a very important word. The word is no. (laughs) That doesn't surprise me. He would know that. And during the first day, I tested, and he did, and he responded. And in 24 hours, he completely forgot this word, and it does not... (laughs) is not familiar with it any longer.
2: So his memory needs work. Yeah. No, I- I'll teach I'll teach you. I'll t- I'll tell you all about it. I'll tell you all about repetition, keeping the training really short to like 2-3 minutes a day.
4: That sounds good.
0: Let me jump in for a minute here just because you met we Diana mentioned a couple of things at the top but Soledad has is as has been mentioned uh Professor Williams, a published author, the latest book, just so we make sure we plug at least something for Soli, is Madrid Again, a novel, available, of course, on Amazon, whatever you find your books, available on Kindle or in hardcover. Do you sign autographs, Soli?
4: Yes, but especially for people who buy from independent bookstores. Right. <laughs> okay. I like it. Although, oh. although, you know, as an author in who's released a book, a first novel during the pandemic, if anybody wants to buy my book on Amazon, no,
3: you won't judge.
4: I won't. I, I don't. know. I don't want to judge. But I also do want to plug independent bookstores. And I've I, that's I presented my book at independent bookstores, and I can't believe that you know people can keep these businesses going now. Although I guess it's a good time. It's been a time where some people have been able to read a lot more than usual. Not everybody Definitely. had different circumstances, but I think that some people have been reading a lot and that's uh,
3: so that's a great place to start is just if you can talk about just what it's been like publishing your first novel in the middle of a pandemic like (laughs) what has that experience been like
0: and was that the plan
4: oh so so nothing where i am now and whatever happened over the the past year pretty much a year None of it was the plan. So so I've just been adapting to many different circumstances and situations and, and kind of running, trying to run a life in Spain and in the U.S., you know, professional and personal life, and now a canine life as well, which I'm not, planning, with a lot of surprises in the mix. So I guess, you know, everybody has been adjusting over the last year to to not knowing, to losing control over, over planning, which is something that I think we, you know, certainly, I mean, you know, who was not planning in some way their life or or trying to, or kind of knowing what the parameters were and that's all changed. And, and it's really, I, I don't want to be a downer because I know it's supposed to be serendipitous, but I do, I work on the Spanish civil war and the Spanish civil war is a big theme in my novel. And I think that, you know, for the first time I've felt, in a way, how a major global, you know, health catastrophe, in this case, crisis, has just upended everybody's life and capacity to plan. And, I mean, not there have been global crises that have affected me before and certainly upset me and worried me, but this has been perhaps more universal and and we've ju- and and longer term so those kind of consequences are i feel like i've written about them a lot and it's the first time that i'm experiencing them in yeah. a way and uh, so that's it's been a very unusual year in that way and i feel like i've learned a lot
3: i was just going to say that the other thing it's very interesting is that there there's a theme in your novel which is very much about the two lives, the the life in the States and the life in Spain. And it's interesting that your experience now is very much, it just echoes that trying to manage, like you said, you're living in Spain, but you're, you have a whole
4: life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so I think that to go back to your question, I would have really liked to be in the U S when my novel came out and, and I would like to be teaching in person. So, I mean, I think that it really, it does matter where you are, but you know, I've had to adapt. And I guess I, I, there are some adaptation skills that I already had that, you know, were kind of handy, you know, that we talk about, it's funny because thinking about Milton and getting, ready for this call I mean not that I really prepared for this call but I was looking (laughs) forward to this conversation I was thinking about Milton and and now we talk about third culture kids which is also kind of is very important in my novel and at the time that term existed but I didn't know about it and we didn't use it and so that there weren't a lot of third culture kids at Milton And so I think that that is an area of adaptation, you know, where you, when your home culture, like inside your house is completely different from the culture at your school where you're being socialized, you have to learn to adapt. You're kind of going back and forth every day. So, so I think that I was somehow prepared to, to, I don't know if I was prepared for something like this year, but it's, you know, it's still, it's been hard. But it's, it's just, you know, we're all doing our best. But Sully, <laughs> you
1: know, one of the things that you said that I think is really striking is that you spent the majority of your career writing about books about the past and the Spanish Civil War and human resilience and understanding how things come out of nothing and the rise of, you know, changes that people could not necessarily have predicted. And you're right. I mean, this is affecting every single human on planet Earth, but you've experienced it from Spain. And, you know, for Di, for Meredith, for David, for, I mean, for all of us, we've been experiencing this from the United States. And I'm just curious, as you are navigating through not just the day-to-day life of living in a pandemic and the absurd aspects to it that have completely conflicted with anything we could have imagined, are there lessons that you have seen from being in Spain, are there things about resilience in, in the experience of pandemic where you are because of Spain's history? What are you seeing?
4: Well, I think that it's been kind of it's evolved as the pandemic has evolved and as it has presented itself. I think that I've probably seen some things that are unique and I've seen things that are universal. So I've seen politicians and people divide into groups of negationists and mask wearers and people who take a lot of care. So I've seen the divisiveness of the pandemic here, like everywhere. I think at the beginning, the response was Quite swift and effective. We went into a total lockdown for three months, and and I also saw up close, more close than I would have liked to, the public health service in action. And in I can't speak for for everybody, but in the particular case that I saw, I was incredibly impressed by the public health system. And you know, it was just very effective and at the same time very personal and. At a time, you know, last spring when people really didn't know what we were dealing with yet. And I think that as it has, as the virus has endured and, you know, we have been battling to get beyond it, but it has persevered and endured, I have felt, I don't know, I think at this point I'm feeling more European than Spanish in my outlook on the virus. Europe, hasn't received the vaccines that it ordered and paid for. And so going back to the Spanish Civil War again, even though we talk about this like this is a pandemic and it's a health crisis, it's a global health crisis, I think that some of the consequences are very much like the consequences of a war where, you know, things are being, supplies are being fought over, and things aren't being distributed. And we don't really know why this is happening. So we're kind of missing a lot of information. It's also coincided with Brexit. And so I think that, you know, it's coincided with Brexit, it's coincided with the US elections. So I think that there's, I think it's a, a very tricky moment for Europe, as it is for many places in the world. It's really powerful actually. So I don't know. We can be more serendipitous if you want. <laughs> no, that's
2: really good. I had no idea about the vaccines scenes in Europe and and I can imagine the mess like with Brexit and how has it affected you personally? Well, that's kind of I don't know if we want to get into that on this
4: podcast because it it affected my mother. And so it she's better, but it was just a terrifying spring, terrifying. And I don't think I want to talk about it in detail, but so that's what I, I did mean though, by seeing it up close and personal. And so that, you know, unfortunately, I see these, these, you know, teenagers and whatever running around Madrid and they're, it's like the virus doesn't exist, right? It's like it never happened. And I saw what it could do so quickly completely by surprise to somebody who lives a very isolated life. I just saw it right away. So it was, I had, you know, I respect this virus. I, I, I know what it, I know what it is. Not, I'm not a, I don't have any medical background, but I've seen enough and I did have to pitch in as I think almost everybody, you know, would do if a close family member was sick that, you know, you kind of, you have to forget those rules if you're not allowed to be with people. It's the opposite. Right? You're not going to leave your clo- your child or your parent or, or your spouse to be alone if they can't fund for themselves. So you just pitch in and, you know, did I do a little amateur nursing? Yes. <laughs> and, the, you know, did it have, was it something that had a great effect? I don't know. But, you know, we made it through and it's a very, it's a very scary virus.
0: To so, me, this is another moment where the youth is wasted on the young, because it, it really <laughs> yeah. is like, I mean, you know, I have a dad who has had a real tough year, suffered a really uh, bad neck injury, and which so he doesn't have COVID, but of course the the care for him is all under the umbrella of COVID, fear of COVID. Quite frankly, I have others that have lost parents to COVID, and then my son is a freshman at UMass Honors College, and he's a rule follower but he tells me that just he just needs to look out the window to see the fraternity parties that continue to rage. Oh, and wow. so it, it it makes me feel even older than I am because this is really one of those finger-wagging moments. Like, you kids, you don't understand what you're <laughs> doing. Get off my lawn and put on your mask, you know? It's, yeah. it's-, it's the
3: same here where I am. It's the young people are all, I mean, out and about, just like nothing's going on. And the rest of us old fogies are wearing our masks. Yeah. You know? <laughs>
4: Well, you're doing the right thing because, you know, what, the, what it's true that it does affect people who are older more often and people in general, people who are much, much older than we are. But anybody who's not wearing a mask can transmit it, even if they don't have any symptoms. So I think that's where the real, you know, the-, the so, really-
1: so one of the things, solely that when- the reason I asked that question is that I've been doing a lot of thinking about sort of the human consciousness around the community- and what that means and i think you were so smart to say what you did including sort of those the political ideologies that shift to the human ideologies of science what people believe and what they think but there's also an element obviously of technology and how they're absorbing what they believe to be true or how they communicate and i think that it sort of dives into the the youth aspect because they are not they're learning from their peers and they're learning for their peer groups in an online, in different kinds of online forums, whether it's TikTok or whatever. But it is it is a culmination of so many dangers at this moment, alongside with the scariness of this virus. And I just, I wonder, you know, when we all studied history in, in high school, we all tried to understand, you know, how something could happen, like an ideology of Nazism or whatever it might have been, and you just think it's so far away and you think that it can't touch you. And we're experiencing it in real time. And some of these young people, and I wonder, I mean, their lives will not, I mean, you cannot go backward. They have been transformed. They will be different humans because of what they went through, as will we. But I I don't want to put cold water on sort of the future, but there's a pessimistic side to me that is, Unusual. I'm really an optimist, but it discourages me greatly not to see humanity coming together in a bigger way. And while we have this blazing, amazing sunshine of a vaccine that is a direct result of humans working together from all over the world, it is really one of the only places. And it's, I mean, obviously it's a critical thing to have to have the vaccine. But we haven't organized our thinking in ways of building building connectivity and I so I I think what we are all experiencing as early you know in our early 50s is not because we're super old it's because I think we're at a moment when we can see the young and actually experiencing sort of have a feel for it but we also have our finger on the pulse of a much older generation because of our parents
4: so we're in this nexus. I think that's absolutely right and and I think that you know what you say about You know, what Dave said about the frat parties, what you say about TikTok is, you know, obviously there, I mean, and my students are young and I've had, I had amazing students last spring and in the fall and they're, they're very optimistic. They're very optimistic about being able to resume, you know, study abroad and travel. And so I have to say that, you know, I think they had a difficult fall and they were very isolated, but my students at Williams were they were amazing in the fall. And I, you know, I really mean that because I couldn't have done what, you know, this Zoom remote teaching if they hadn't been. And so I was um, grateful that they were just, you know, very giving and I think very relieved to be engaged in kind of, you know, reading and talking about things. But I think that, you know, you're right that there's a lot of Youth culture, and not just youth culture, a lot of people that are our age, too, but would like to be, who, you know, through online, and, and I don't know how closely this gets into things that you're working on, Farah, but who who can organize secretly, right, which is what teenagers do, that is that teenagers are great at this, Right. And so are puppies. (laughs) Really, you know, being able to organize secret activities that are going against the public good and that are going against the law, that are breaking the law, right? We've seen a lot of that lately, not just in Washington, but also in Holland and, you know, in many countries, there have been these massive protests against wearing masks, against curfew against lockdown, but they've turned violent. And that's been, you know, and they're organized online, right? People, uh, That's how people know where to go and what time to show up and how it's to... a really interesting point. I think so much of being a
3: teenager is about rebellion. Mm-hmm. And the stakes are just mm-hmm. far too high right now for them to be able to rebel. Right. And it's just kind of extraordinary to imagine... I mean, I look at my daughter, she's a junior in high school, and she has spent the last nine, sorry, eleven months on Zoom. And they can't she's in this house all the time. She can't sneak off or do anything. And I just think like, what would I have done if I couldn't say I was going to one person's house, actually go to another's, or you know, like what
4: would teenage life be like with without I know here it's very different because this is an urban environment and, and they're out all the time, you know, I, they're out in, and there are restaurants and bars open until um, 10 PM. Oh every day point. So, and there's no, you know, there's no drinking age and there's you no, know, which could be, you know, good or bad. I mean, I think that a lot of kids are more used to drinking here early on, you know, to have a beer, or a glass of wine. So they don't necessarily, you know, not when they hit the drinking aid. but, you know, they're out and about and, but, and doing, you know, all c- kinds of things. Some, you know, some just letting off steam and having fun and others, you know, having, you know, doing clandestine parties and stuff. But I want to, I actually wanted to get back to the, the question of history, right? Which is, I think, I mean, I certainly am coming at Things or, or the present from in a very different way than, than Farah is. But I, I think there's you know, there's some points in common. And I think that history is so important in terms of understanding the, the present, right? And present tensions. And, and I have an anecdote about Milton. And I think this is one of the things that got me really interested in history, learning about the Holocaust. And I asked the history professor, in my very like American way feeling very patriotic and very American as I digested all of this information about the Holocaust, you know, I had made the diary of Anne Frank, but I hadn't seen the horrors and the number, you know, I hadn't had access to that kind of information before. And I said, but you know, why didn't we do anything, right? Like we, the Americans. And she said, and I asked this in class, I raised my hand and she said, Oh, Because we didn't know about it. (laughs) Oh boy. And I going home and feeling so frustrated about this answer and knowing like, that I would probably not get a great grade on my next paper. And I was very, you know, passionate about the subject again for just, you know, intellectual reasons also for personal reasons and just thinking, you know, that's actually, (laughs) that's not an acceptable answer. And the reasons why we don't do things about things. I mean, that's a really interesting discussion, I think. But
1: Sully, so you're talking about this at the moment where on our screens, all we're seeing all day is horror. Whether it's in Burma, whether it's in Russia, we're seeing human rights violations, Saudi. I mean, wherever you look, um, there are cases where humans are aware of what is going on. And I think it's really interesting. That was your response in history class to a horror that you were observing through what you read and what you you learned. Of course, that's the right answer. And I I have to tell you, I, I think this conversation in America about how we teach history and whose history and how we incorporate history is the most essential question we can be asking Today and, and we've got to jettison this idea for many people where history is this thing, like this heavy-duty academic thing that people have to carry on their back somehow, but incorporate it into a consciousness about who we are. And if you look at what happened at the Capitol on January 6th, and you listen to the terrorists talk yeah. about American history, it is like they're reading it from a comic book. You know, and it blows you away because even in the most simplistic reading of our nation's history, you couldn't possibly come to those conclusions. But yet they do. And so I'm so happy that you said what you said. I will make us, we all have a touchstone to Boston in some way. One of the most, I think, compelling na- nonprofit organizations in America is called Facing History and Ourselves. And they do spectacular work, not just in America, but around the world. And I know that when I was, when I was going around the world on behalf of, the, of our country, when I worked at the State Department, I talked a lot about, Not just the curriculums and classrooms, but what you're doing outside of the classrooms as you are talking about what you see. And just the last thing, because I think it is connected to this, you know, I remember raising the issue of Columbus Day when we were at Milton. And I remember asking why we would possibly be celebrating that and what kind of, I mean, I didn't know enough and I loved history too. But that, like, why? How could that possibly be an abbreviated version? I mean, there were people there before before the pilgrims. I mean, you know, like, why are we not talking about this? And again, the answer was very similar. But this is the story we talk about. Columbus arrived. He brought culture and civilization to wild people, and that is the nation's history. And it just—it's horrifying. And so Lee and I had the luxury of going to Milton in the lower school together. So we've known each other a very long time and I think about the field trips to Plymouth Plantation and to some of the other places and that was the simplistic stuff that we were taught about how uncivilized the the the, the tribal Cultures and Native histories and nations that were evolved, that were sophisticated, that were around for a very long time before Europeans arrived, never discussed.
3: And I think that's changing because my daughter is a junior. She came up, for, she, she works down in the office. She does her Zooms in the office, and I'm up in the kitchen usually. <laughs> she came up and she said, Oh my God, I didn't realize we just basically stole Hawaii. <laughs> like why didn't and then I sort of stared at her and she was like well, why didn't I know that before yeah. and, and I said to her I was like it's amazing that you're learning it now like I know that it must see she's she just felt so kind of betrayed she was like what you know and I just said history is being rewritten quite a lot and you're going to see things and learn things that I didn't know about until my 20s.
1: But you know what, Diana, the thing is, she has every right to be outraged. Mm -hmm. I mean, it it is not acceptable in the 21st century when we have so much at our fingertips. And the science, the archaeological science that can prove about things, it's not just sort of, it's not fiction. I mean, we can scientifically prove the people were in specific places for a certain amount of time. I mean, that whole field of archaeology has gone Nuts globally, and yet it's not being incorporated into the the data that kids are learning about who we are. You know, mm-hmm. as and you our... think about
3: what people have discovered through Twenty Three and Me,
1: yeah, in
3: terms of their actual ancestry, and there are so many secrets and surprises, and just a lot of terrible, obviously terrible violence, and just a lot of ugliness in the past that people have been forced to reckon with. To be like, oh, that's not who I thought I was
4: <laughs> yeah I think that's it's interesting Diana that you bring that up because I think that people you know we are all to some extent guilty of self-fashioning right self-fashioning is something that is a very human trait I, I don't know to what but There's also, you know, there there needs to be a capacity for self-criticism, not just as individuals, but, you know, as communities or as nations, as countries, in in terms of, you know, the history of a country. And so I think I'm what the kind of, you know, experience that your daughter is going through, that Charlotte is going through and and learning about things in a different way that embraces self-criticism is really important. And I've certainly seen it in my students over the years. And it's, you know, I'm, it's a give and take, I learn a lot from them, too, because they're from different generations, and they keep getting younger, and I keep getting older. <laughs> no, they're the same age, and, um, but I keep getting older. <laughs> and so it's very interesting. I think that my, my concern, though, is that is, still a minority kind of change in the United States. And I would say in in many other countries as well. So that kind of that going towards a self-criticism and a questioning of the way things have been taught is really important. And it's happening in some places. And other people are very threatened by that. Mm -hmm. And so there's a backlash, right? So so that's, again, I guess what I was saying before about the COVID and the two, you know, the two different, the two kind of, this division. That, I mean, it's not just two things that have, haven't been split into two. That's a very reductive way of saying it. But, you know, that there are tensions about how people are dealing with crisis and people are opposed. And, you know, neighbors who live in the same building are opposed about whether to wear a mask or not, and they may have to encounter each other in an elevator. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, you know, it does, as someone who, who works on civil war and, you know, a civil war that really didn't end, you know, the official dates of Spanish civil war in 1936 to 1939, but those are just dates, right? You know, the tensions were from long before and the dictatorship that ensued was still around when I was little. You know, when I was at school with Farah and Milton, when coming back to Spain, there was a dictatorship. I didn't know it was called a dictatorship. I didn't know that Franco had been an ally of Hitler's. You know that there was this kind of perpetuation of you know really of the worst values from Europe in the 1930s going on when I was a child. So you know, it's there's like this link between the 1930s and my childhood that has you know I don't know how it my life would have been different because one can't know but it certainly made these things important to me because I I see how artificially they're often contained in history books and how unruly and enduring they are in real life and Mm -hmm. that you know wave that just keep coming so so I do think that it's very important you know that there's a this is Williams alum but he's a presidential historian, Michael Beschloss. He's Mm -hmm. on the tower a lot, or, you know, has been traditionally. And I've been following his commentary over the the past few months. And it's been very interesting. I mean, he's, Mm -hmm. it's been a little overwhelming. And I don't really, I'm not really big on, on Twitter myself, but he's a presidential historian. I think, you know, exactly what he works on has just been kind of called into question. Uh-huh. right everything that is kind of sacred and the capital the president and you know so it's and he's brought a lot of historical perspective even into you know his tweets and it's been very interesting
0: hi this is david yaz producer of the link podcast if you're enjoying the show we hope you consider supporting us with a contribution through patreon The link is a labor of love for us, but there are production costs attached to creating a quality show. And you can help us by visiting patreon.com slash the link podcast. We have some cool ways of thanking you for your support, including t-shirts, mugs and shout outs on the show. You can do us a solid for as little as $5 a month, and we will continue to bring you great conversations that foster the bonds of our high school class and beyond. Once again, please visit patreon.com slash the link podcast. Now back to the show. Well, it's up to the segment on the show that we call Do You Remember, which sometimes we play news clips about the 80s. But today we're feeling a lot more philosophical and continuing to talk with our guest, Soledad Mara. We decided it would be cool to go around the horn and talk about inspirational teachers since we have one right here. And, Soli, I said teacher and not professor, and I don't know why it matters, but apparently it does. Anyway, <laughs> so would someone like to volunteer to go first or should we let Soli go first since she's our guest?
1: Let's solely go okay. for
0: Tell us who you remember from your days at Milton and maybe how some of the lessons you learned from them. Carry on today.
4: Great. So I've actually been thinking about people who I haven't thought about in a while, and it's been really nice. And so there are a couple of people from the lower school and who I think that Farah will share some of these memories with me. And actually, I have a question for Farah, which is, I have a blank about our fifth grade teacher who came after mrs dudson and before (laughs) miss lawrence okay i don't know why i have a blank she was so amazing she was really amazing i loved her okay why i have a blank so (laughs) i wanted to remember from the lower school please edit that out mrs greenleaf mrs greenleaf i farah is going to help me because my memory is you know obviously not what it was arlene greenleaf ran the library yes And we had reading hour with her and you were allowed, I think there was some direction, but it was mainly, you know, you could read whatever you wanted. It was a very cozy room. And I think that really, you know, as an only child, I read a lot anyway, I always read a lot, but this was very nice to have a place, a a space, a literal, you know, room at school, that reinforced something that I did at home and loved and showed me that it was very valued. And she was a very special woman. And
1: she was extraordinary. I'm so happy you raised her. And I'll tell you something. One of the, one of the interesting things when in the junior building and Milton was set up so that kindergarten through three grade three was in one building four through six was in another building. And Arlene Greenleaf in the junior building had that same kind of reading reading room little nook and she introduced everybody to the Beatrix Potter books right. but she had all of their stuff because we were very young I mean obviously first grade second grade third grade in kindergarten and and she had all their stuffed animals from the Beatrix Potter series she understood how to develop that sort of nourishment that you need yeah. to hold a book in your hand
4: and feel like you could just sort of sink in I'm so glad you raised her yes she was so and. I- I don't even remember, you know, if that was a class with a grade. I don't even know if we got grades in the third grade. I don't remember. No, we did not. We got <laughs> probably. But so I don't remember her being, having a judge, you know, an evaluative role. She was, and she just encouraged reading and it really worked. I mean, for me, it completely clicked. And then also from the lower school, Sarah Patterson. Yes, of course. do you know, why he was called Sir Patterson. I do not know <laughs> what his first name was. Roy, Roy. That's right, Roy uh, Patterson. He was just such a warm and elegant and just a, a very positive person. So I, I really appreciate him. Mrs. Engel, who we had music class in the lower school, and we learned to sing so many fun songs i mean just songs from broadway musicals and i mean it was just a bob dylan you know do
1: you know what song she introduced to us and only later did i understand the symbolism of it do you remember the song lift every voice yes yeah so she incorporated that into and you know milton she was very radical for that period of time growing up and not only did we sing Beatles songs but we also sang Really incredible civil rights hymns, you know, like that one, and so I, I
4: powerful, really powerful memory. And we also sang Hanukkah songs yeah. and songs that were, that, so there were representations of culture that we that were much broader than we were getting in other classes.
1: And solely, actually, that was really important. You and I have talked about this before. There were very few students at Milton when we were there. That had foreign backgrounds, and yeah. and so it was so important for you and for me to see that sense of internationalism or diversity or however you want to call it incorporated in not just into some of the books that we read, but into the songs that we sang and the artwork. I mean, you remember Nick Thayer as an art teacher. I mean, he too brought in. I remember a lot of different perspectives that you wouldn't normally see in a school like Milton and that was very important.
4: No, that that was that was definitely important. And you know, I think that again, well, Farah and I had were very close when we were little and we had a, another friend, Melody Hall, who's now Melody Duckin, who's running for, you know, public office in Florida. Or just ran, I mean, got an incredible amount of votes she didn't graduate from milton academy but we were definitely a threesome and had you know and came from very different backgrounds really important actually and prototype at that time so i want other people to be able to talk about teachers too so mary louise bomlan taught french and she she lived on Randolph Avenue, like towards where Curtis was and the Catholic church was and in some, you know, housing for faculty off to the right. As far as I know, as far as I know, she lived alone. She, you know, lived in this town alone and taught these amazing classes for decades. And she made me fall in love with French literature. And really, I mean, my French, I think was I had learned some French when I was very young, so I had a good start, but, you know, because of her, I wanted French to be fluent and impeccable, and we were talking about existentialism in French, you know, in 14 years old in her class, and she always wore her sweater over her shoulders, like cape, you know, and she, you know, lived alone there, and it was a, very pretty house I think it had a couple of faculty apartments off of wasn't right on the road off of Randolph Avenue but you know I was wondered about her and she was just you know how she had such passion in her teaching and somehow you know that was her life the passion she brought into into those classes and I just found her amazing and inspiring and, and really kind
0: Excellent. Let's see. Meredith, you've been strangely quiet. Would you like to go next?
2: Well, I was just also thinking of. I totally forgot that we sang hymns every day, didn't we? We mm-hmm. did.
0: I don't think we did that in the boys school. I think that was a good school. That, that is because yeah. you
2: guys misbehave and you don't know what you're doing.
1: But, but we did. And
0: we have no soul. So that's the other yeah, reason. For
1: you guys you started you started to adopt some of the things that we were doing in the girls later on. And now I'm sure everything has been thrown out along with the Milton hymnal, which was really wonderful. But <laughs> really wonderful. I love
2: that. It was so weird to me because I never sang hymns. <laughs> yeah. you know, like I was like, are you serious? We're really gonna be singing this? Like <laughs> does everyone realize that we're singing this? Like well, that's,
4: Meredith, that's what Mrs. Engel taught us Oh Hanukkah Light the menorah. Oh, and you know, I think nobody knew why or a lot of not nobody but a lot of people didn't know why we were singing that song. I mean, we used to sing <laughs> what it was about. We would
3: know. sing Shalom Haverim. Yeah, right. That is not a song I would know.
0: Good, good pronunciation on that too, Diana. (laughs) Well done, Diana. I
3: could I could actually break into
2: song
0: if you'd like. Meredith, tell us who your your uh, favorite teacher was.
2: I remember Mr. Hardy was really, always really great, and we. I remember we had nice talks all the time. And was he in the health center or near the health center? That's really the only person I remember like have, Oh, and, and, and I love the ethics class, but you know, I think we should uh, move on to die and, okay. and, and start <laughs> up for this because I don't, I mean, I remember, Oh, actually Mr. Ziliaks was great. Yeah. He was really great. And you know, th- that's what I can keep positive.
0: Cool. Diana, you may take your turn.
2: Sure. So
3: I actually feel like there were a lot of teachers who were passionate about their fields. You know, like I didn't necessarily like them. So like Mr. Britton was a great English teacher. I don't think I really liked him, but I could tell that he loved literature. And I th- I was really impressed by that. Mr. Hilgendorf was another one who was incredibly passionate about U.S. history and I didn't actually like history, but I just, I absorbed so much from these people. And I was just going to give a little shout out to people like Mrs. Robbins, who worked, not teachers, but people who made Milton really special. Mrs. Robbins worked in the office and she was incredible. And she did a lot of sort of behind the scenes work on my behalf. Like I was late all the time and somehow she managed to orchestrate things. So I never... Had to go to detention or whatever we Ah. called it. And (laughs) and Mrs. Lake, who I would show up, you know, sort of bedraggled and sleep deprived. And she didn't ask questions. She gave me a place to sleep. She, I mean, I just, there were, were, I went through some tough times at Milton. And like, it was amazing the people who kind of noticed and took care of me and just were kind. So that's my answer. Can I go back? And I I
2: forgot. Madame Boulan definitely and Debbie Simon and Dale Delitas like oh. they were huge what was I talking about that's all I know they were huge and so encouraging and so supportive of my acting and performing and speech team and that definitely has had a huge effect on me so pardon for forgetting them but yeah
3: <laughs> speaking but, of passionate about their fields
4: <laughs>
2: yeah no kidding right I want to second
4: uh, definitely Debbie Simon and who we read and Frank with and that was just like such a turning point for me and then i have to say one one last thing this might be the last thing i say but my mother who i never studied with and never took a class with but marisol maura and
1: i was going to call out your mom even though i've never taken a spanish class in my life but i think teaching is not just inside of the classroom it's also outside of it and I knew her for so long because you and I were so close but but even you know in the upper school when I was walking to class or something the conversations I had with her She's so lovely and so wise and caring. I think it for the teachers that have actually transformed you are those that can connect with you and make you make you ask different kinds of questions about what you're studying, but also about yourself. And she was one of those, she was definitely one of those people. She always wanted to know what I was studying and what I was doing. And I was very, very lucky to to know her while I was growing up. So that I'm glad you raised her because she deserves to be I'm raised.
4: She'll be very happy to hear.
0: Farah, would you like to share?
1: Well, there are a lot of teachers. I was at Milton for 13 years, and I could spend an hour talking about people that that moved me and made me who I am. There's no question that foundationally the teachers at Milton really made a difference, and I'm in touch with many of them today. So I will echo what Meredith said about Litas and Debbie Simon to extraordinary teachers in the upper school. I would echo Sir Patterson in the lower school and, and many other teachers from both the junior the junior building, in particular Miss Loazzo, who Introduced us to a book by the great grandson of well, it's Fenimore Fenimore Cooper is the family, but there was a book that has now gone out of print. But she gave she'd read every either every week or every day at a particular time, sitting on a stool. The book is called Tal T A L, and it was a story within a story. And I didn't we all loved it. We were all obsessed with it. We all tried (laughs) to get her to read more in one day, but. She taught us patience, but but sort of curiosity in terms of what was going to happen. That book is actually transformative, and for any parent that's listening to this podcast, I urge you to find it. Uh, there's a company in Texas that has reprinted it. But called again, called Tal T A L, and um, we were read that book in third grade. And one of the things, it's actually, if you do the homework on the book, you realize that the person who wrote it, the great grandson of Fenimore Cooper, had actually traveled through Central Asia and parts of Europe. And so he was bringing together traditional tales that he heard in those parts of the world and wove it into this beautiful story. Anyway, so Sonia Loazzo is is one of the Um, call-outs. She was an amazing teacher. In the upper school too, I will say Mark Hilgendorf, who taught history. And I had him twice. And I remember... To go back to the earlier conversation we were having about history, he was lamenting the fact that we didn't have enough time to talk about the, the, the civil rights movement in America. He and I used to spend a lot of time in the ancient civ class talking about, I wanted to know more about women in the ancient world. I wanted to understand why we were only reading about men. And so I remember him saying, okay, so let's do a special project in which you can you know, dive deeper into that and uncover things for yourself. So there are many teachers that inspired it and made a difference to me, but those are some of them.
0: Mr. Hilgendorf was a favorite of mine, too. He's now gotten three shout outs on the podcast, which uh, well done, uh, Mark Hilgendorf. but I, I, the one thing for whatever reason I, I remember the look in his eye when he was talking about something that he really was excited about, so he really he really had the passion, like you guys said, for what he was teaching, but he also was very personable and would he would tell tales of his son Willie and who was and so as you know a young person, I got to kind of see him as a parent through his eyes, sort of, and maybe a preview as to what kind of parent I wanted to be. I don't know why I I paid attention so much to that. remember we had a discussion about the movie E.T., And how he wouldn't let Willie see E.T. because apparently there was a bad portrayal of parents in the film, which was a legit criticism of the film at the time. But then in the one occasion we got to see, like, Willie had come into class or something or he was picking him up or something. And the kid just, like, lit up as soon as he saw his dad. Daddy! And and Mr. Hogan was like, Willie, come here and give me a hug. And so the uh, sort of goodness in Mr. Hilgendorf yeah. was always on display. I thought he was just totally. a, a good man. Yeah. I'll add one more if you guys will entertain it. Mr. Connolly was my creative writing teacher, James Connolly, who had kind of a JFK obsession and signed everything JFC. I guess What's
3: like JFK. Oh,
0: yeah. When we were in school, it was still probably three or four years before the, the movie Dead Poets Society came out. But Mr. Mm -hmm. Connolly could have been the Robin Williams. I mean, he wasn't wacky like the Robin Williams character, but he was definitely inspirational. He really lived and breathed literature. He, I never thought I could write a poem and he actually could show you, and this was his thing, as any good creative writing teacher will tell you. And solely you can, you can feel free to reject this or accept it. But that one of the most basic rules is one of the most important ones. And that's show, don't tell. So don't, Tell your audience that it was a miserable morning. Show them why. Because the water in the fo- coming out of the faucet was too cold and the milk was sour and all these kind of things. And I had written a poem about a kid who was homesick at summer camp, and it was terrible. It was a piece of garbage. It, it was, and, so he, and we were having a one-on-one meeting, and Mr. Connolly turned over the paper and wrote a, a poem. It, it, I swear it took him like 90 seconds max. And he said, I remember the days at camp, uh, you know, Sunapee or whatever, when Jimmy Madras lit matches and told me, you'll get used to me. And just and like, I was like, how did you You just came up with this on the spot? Like, how did you do that? But I, so I wanted to copy him and his writing style. And years later, so I, I spent 15 years as a writer at Lawyers Weekly and years later at a reunion, I was able to tell him, you know, I've been writing, awesome. I've been actually getting paid to write Mr. Connolly now for about 15 yeah. years. And your cl- I always come back to your class and all the things you taught us. And Mr. Connolly is very sort of stayed and just kind of had that look. And I picture him with a pipe in his mouth as he was looking at me just kind of nodding and uh, said, thank you very much, David. And then later, a, a different teacher told me, said, what did you say to Mr. Connolly? And I said, oh, it was all nice stuff about how he inspired me. He said, because he, he was trying to tell me about his conversation with you and he had tears in his eyes. And I was like, all right, I meant something to Mr. <laughs> Connolly. Like, so. so those sweet. People- he was amazing.
4: He was a really big influence. And I remember he, we read Hemingway with him, but we also read a parody of Hemingway. Somebody had written a, a Parity of Hem- Hemingway's style, and I thought that was great, right? The, because you're kind of shaking up the canon, you're studying the canon, but also seeing, you know, how we can pull back. and That's a
0: smart way to teach it to kids who are like, you know, fifteen years old, sixteen, or whatever. You know, yeah, <laughs> right.
4: He was very important, and I don't know. I mean, I think. Well, you know, this is. I wanted to see suggest, but uh, though I didn't get in touch with anybody beforehand. But if we had a few minutes to talk at the end or which is coming near, I don't know like two minutes just to talk about French in addition to teachers.
0: Please, I don't know if I yeah, please that. do. We've got a few minutes left. So go ahead. Sully. you clearly have had some memories come back to you in preparation. <laughs> so tell us what yeah. you're, tell us who you're thinking about.
4: Well, no, I'm, I'm thinking about a lot of people, but I, I think that, you know, when, when you're sometimes when you're an adolescent or a kid, you know, can perceive, you know, you perceive a school or an institution in different ways, right? But I think that you know, now that we are, n- nobody's going to give us any grades from Milton anymore. A lot of our original relationships with the institution don't exist. I think this for me, this,
0: this podcast is not sponsored by Milton Academy, so no. by the way, <laughs> not at <laughs> so all. You, so you can I talk.
4: The friendships have endured, and this year with the virus, have you know. this whole year and the experience with COVID has really not just preparing for this podcast has strengthened and brought back friendships that I really valued from Milton that, you know, maybe after college, during college, after college, that our lives were taken in different ways. But, you know, frankly, I imagine that if it wasn't for those friendships, this podcast wouldn't even really be happening. (laughs) So I think that, there kind of it's like a watermark underlying this experience, and so I think that that's it's important. And so I think you know at different points, if somebody had asked me, you know, and I know that this isn't like the Milton sponsored thing, and I'm not I'm not trying to to be a booster. And and I think that some of my friends from Milton didn't graduate from Milton because they left and went somewhere else, like Farah and our friend. friend Melody, or or somebody who was from a group of friends later on, junior year, I guess, like Andrew MacArthur. You know, he didn't graduate from Milton, so people who who were important or who were part of our lives, they don't necessarily have to have a Milton diploma, a Milton Academy diploma, but they were people who, you know, now with all this time that's gone by, you know, it really they're important are, are somehow connected to have been connected to my life or on my mind in the past year. And I think that, and I'm really glad for that. I mean, it's We
0: amazing. talked about this a little bit on a previous pod and, and my, I guess my words, I don't want to speak for everyone, but it's one of the nice dynamics of growing older and learning is that you can return to friends who you had a relationship before that maybe can be something mm-hmm. now more now, because you're more of a, a fully formed person. You know, we weren't really back then. I don't know if you guys have thought. I think
3: when you're older, you're able to be you're able to be much more vulnerable and real. And so I think that helps connect you back to people who knew you and accepted you for who you were then, but you didn't necessarily share the whole story with them at that time. And so now that we're older and I don't know about everyone else, but for me, I was in a big hurry to get out of Milton, to get go away from home, to go to college and to just you know, spread my wings. I was just done with it all. And I probably didn't care that much about staying in touch with people from Milton until I realized that those people were extraordinary and that, that they were, and having reconnected with so many, I actually have probably spoken more to our classmates in the last year than ever, but they're extraordinary people. They're creative. They think for themselves. They've all had this, like, such a great journey, and I fully appreciate that now that I didn't back then. I just felt like it was this provincial place, and, like, you know, I just thought, like, (laughs) ugh, it's so stifling, and everyone so looks the same, and I hate it, and I've really grown to appreciate it. So I echo what you said totally.
2: Uh, And also we have... 35 years of history to talk about, you know, that we have all, you know, people have had children. And one of the things in the last reunion that I went to, I remember the, one of the things, cause our class, you know, they were saying, Oh, we're all messed up or whatever, but there was the last, the la- I think it was the 25th reunion was the last one I went to. And one of the common denominators was that every single person had failed at something and there was a vulnerability, like a divorce, or the business fell through, or we. there was a common denomination, I don't know if that's the right word, but a threat. Denominator. That was, thank common you. Common And that brought everyone together, and there was a, a human connection that you know previous reunions were more about like look what i've accomplished yeah. and how huge i am or this and that but that was the time when we had reached a, a certain age where all of us could see the humanity in others because we'd all been broken to a certain extent and i just i appreciated that mm-hmm. so the last reunion i went to was the look what i've accomplished
4: one which is I <laughs> where meredith ended up back in, in My apartment in you and Shin and Sam Bisbee, and I can't remember
2: who else, and I think we stayed up till four in the morning. I remember that, and I remember thinking, gosh, Sully is still so freaking cool.
0: (laughs) And look at how cool she is now.
2: I know, like my brain couldn't be splattered further. Well, when the
1: pandemic is over, we're all going to go into our classroom and sit in the last row and just... You know observe an amazing teacher teach next generation
0: love it love it well we are up against the clock thanks so mm-hmm. much so you're fantastic thank
1: you, Soli. thank you so
0: much solely and
4: thank you for having me on <laughs> do a solid
0: to our classmate Sola buy her book on amazon madrid again it's a great way to spend the pandemic of course and thank you meredith of course diana farah for listening and for participating in the link. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to us on Apple podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts and go to pod617.com for more information on the pod and how to get in touch with us. And maybe even you want to be a guest in the future, but you got big shoes to fill. I'll tell you that. Thanks again for listening to the link. See you next time. Hi, this is David Yowes from Pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network. Welcome to Pod Only Knows, the game drawn from podcast highlights of Pod617.com. The first question is true or false? There has yet to be a U.S. college to require its students to get the COVID-19 vaccination. For the answer, here's an excerpt from the Twin XL podcast.
2: This is Laura DeVoe for the Twin XL pod. We are excited for season two, and I'm going to throw it over to my co-host, Beth Brampetro.
3: When we recorded back in March, we had a conversation about COVID vaccines and whether they'd
1: be required for students this coming fall by colleges. We felt pretty confident that they probably wouldn't be because that would be unusual. But several colleges have decided to require COVID vaccines for students.
2: We do want to say one more thing vaccines
1: are cool the more you get vaccinated the more school will be cool
0: the next quiz challenge comes from past tens the music nostalgia podcast featuring yours truly and michael milt wolf the chartmeister see if you can guess the top five songs that contain the word thing or things according to ranker.com holy crap i can't think of anything okay The Thing. How about the actor Charlie Sheen in the movie Major League? Does that ring a bell at all? Wild Thing. Come on. Thing. Kind of an easy hint. Wild Thing. They got Damn the it. Side. So now I'm going to play like a little snippet of the song and see if you can get it from just a little snippet.
2: One Thing Leads to Another.
0: Yes. Very good, Mill. Here's a brief snippet of this song. If you feel scared, I do. <laughs> oh, Things Will Only Get Better by Howard Jones. That's right. Here's a brief snippet of this song. Oh, my goodness gracious. Crazy Little <laughs> Thing Called Love. Of course. A classic. Right. So let's see if you get this one from a brief snippet. Oh. That's Steve Winward, the finer thing. Wow, well done, Melt. If you want to hear more awesome podcasts or if you'd like to produce one of your own, please visit pod617.com. This is Dave for pod617.com. In pod, we trust.